Um, good to have you all here. If, if you're someone that's new, I saw a few faces that looked kind of new today that are hanging out with us. Glad you're here. Um, if you need a Bible today, we've got Bibles, and so the, there'll be guys that'll be coming down with Bibles. Just raise your hand if, if you need one. Um, we're passionate about teaching the Bible, so uh, we're going to be opening them up today and, and looking in them. But uh, for all of those that aren't new, hi to you too. So it's good to, good to see all of you. Um, here's what we've been trying to do just to catch everybody up. We've been looking at 1 Corinthians 11 and asking ourselves the question, what do relationships between men and women, what are they supposed to look like? How did God design them to work? And one of the things that we talked about is that 1 Corinthians 11 dives us back into God's created intent, way back in the garden, where the whole point was, is he said, let us create man in our image. And then he added to it this idea that not only that, but in our image includes male and female. That at the end of the day, the most important thing that happens in our lives is not just that we're saved from hell, but understanding that God saved us for a grander purpose. He's got big plans. His plans being what he started from the very beginning of the garden, and that is that he would see himself in us. And so that's what we tried to do. We tried to grab a mirror, right? And we, we pulled it apart, and we talked about the, how a mirror is made, is that we have silver nitrate on one end, we have glass, and then when you push these together, that's how the reflection happens. And so for four weeks, we kind of pulled it, we took for, excuse me, for two weeks, we looked at men, we represented them with the glass because they're easy to see through. We represented the women over here with, with the silver nitrate, and I couldn't come up with something funny to say there, but there you go. But what we're going to do today now is we're going to push these things back together. Because one of the things that's so key to this is that God, when he created men and women, he had an intent to, to, to display himself through more than just one. That each of us, men and women, are created in his image. And he wants to see God formed in us. Now the thing that hit me this week as I was thinking about it and I was praying for it, we are the only thing in all of God's creation that struggles with displaying God's glory. The heavens declare, right, his glory. That creation doesn't have a problem doing it. It's us as humans. We struggle and that's why we had to talk about the fall. Is that when humankind fell, when Adam and Eve, the first time they rejected God and now all of humanity throughout time as we've rejected God, we just struggle in this display of him, this, this thing to which he designed us for. But the thing I love about God is he's not going to quit in our lives until Christ is formed in us. What he began in us, he's going to do what? He's going to finish. Even to the point, now just think about this, like 1 John 3, it says that when we see Jesus, we'll see him because we will be like him. Isn't that crazy? The whole point of the Bible is to tell us that God is going to finish his created intent. In fact, by the time you get to Revelation 21 and 22, that's his whole point. Is that finally we land into this place in which God has designed us to be. And so all these moments, like specifically in some of the men-women relationships I have between my wife and I, every once in a while she sees glimpses of what heaven's going to be. Well, probably with me, it's not every once in a while. I'm kidding. She's going to be up here in a second, so I have to be careful. But she sees these little glimpses of what God intends. All of us in here are these foretastes of glory that know Jesus Christ. 
He's showing himself off. Christ is going to be formed in us, and that's God's intent. Now, this is hard because so often when we convey the gospel, all we tell people is what they're saved from, and we forget to tell them what they've been saved for. Now, what I want to do is is I'm going to use the book of Ephesians today, and so we're not going to actually be in 1 Corinthians. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to build towards first, uh, Ephesians 5, 22 through 31, where it talks about men's and women's relationships. I'm not going to teach anything out of 5, 22 through 31, but we're going to kind of build the case. How did Paul, in the book of Ephesians, arrive finally at how men and women are supposed to, to operate together? Now, one of the most famous verses in Ephesians is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And probably if you've come to know Christ, sometime somebody sat down with you and shared it with you, right? Look at verse 8. For by grace, let me say that again, for by grace, God's one-way unconditional love that just pours out at us. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. He wants us to understand that there is nothing whatsoever that I can do to make myself right with God. He had to do it all. That's why we sang the song Amazing Grace. The whole point of it, when the guy wrote it, he wanted people to understand it was totally of God that I got rescued. The problem is we tend to stop there. God's rescue plan is not just that you avoid hell. God's rescue plan is that he has something incredible for those that are his. Because look down at verse 10. I wish we kept going in verse 10 whenever we shared Jesus with people. Four, look at that. You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. Do you see that? That word workmanship literally means a work of art. It's incredible for me to sit back and think about what God's doing, but when he rescues all of us, it's kind of like a a painter's palette, is that he takes a little Todd, and he takes a little my wife Lisa and the rest of you that are believers, he squeezes it on there, and we become almost the pictures in this masterpiece that he's putting together. See, when somebody comes to know Christ, that's what they have to understand is that God's intent is not just that you escape hell. In fact, I think there's a lot of people that could care less if they know God. Really, all they want is they want the better alternative, heaven. And by the way, I'm not sure that that's sufficient for salvation. In Luke 14, he had all these people following him and he stopped and he said, unless you hate your mother, your brother, your sister, even your own life, and take up your cross and follow me. You can't be my disciple. What's his point? Follow me. I've got plans for you. I'm doing something here. Come and look down in verse 10, Ephesians 2.10. I've got good works for you to do. The idea behind good works, I want to display myself through you. I want to see myself in you. That in this is what he's talking about, is that in the plan of God, he wants to show himself off, and then he conveys it that I've been having this plan since the very beginning. Do you see that? Which he planned when? Beforehand, that you would walk in them. Now here's what I want to do with that little word walk. You see it down in there? That's a key word in the book of Ephesians. That word walk gets kind of this idea, a way of life. Now what we're going to do, because we've been talking about this, is using the term dance. So let me just adjust things a little bit in the text, just so we can kind of keep our rhythm going in this idea of the dance. 
but this key being that you might dance. See down in verse, take walk out, insert dance in there, just for, just for now, okay? Some of you are like, I can't do it. Just go with me. That you might dance in them. In our relationships between men and women, whether we're talking marriage or single people or maybe widowed people or divorced people, what he's really trying to convey to us is this dance matters. It's not insignificant. In fact, turn over to chapter 4, verse 1. Let me show you how significant it is. I told you we're going to be in Ephesians. Chapter 4, verse 1. Paul expresses this idea. He says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord. He, he just is making sure he understands it. He says, now, I urge you, and watch, the, here's our word walk coming up again, to walk or to dance in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now in this, don't miss the rest of Ephesians 1 through 3. Paul has painted this picture in chapter 1. Do you get how much God is for us? That before the foundations of the world, he chose you in love to be in Christ. That somehow he saw all of us that would follow him and he said, I'm for that one. He goes to the extent of sending his son to redeem out of sin, out of the slave market of sin, make us one of his very own children, which he calls his inheritance in verse 11. And then he places his Holy Spirit inside of us and says, if you don't think I'm for you, let me give you the Holy Spirit so you understand I am completely for you. Chapter 4.1, now dance in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. At the end in 1, 6, or 1, uh, excuse me, 15 through 23, he starts laying out this idea that Paul has to actually pray that we'll get it. He starts praying, going, God, you're going to have to open the eyes of their heart because this thing that you're doing is so big and so magnificent. If I don't pray for them to get it, they're not going to get it. It has to be a spiritual reality. My heart has to begin to understand what it is that God's called me to. Chapter 3, he expresses to us, it's like, I'm not going to lie to you, this whole thing is hard. But when you get to chapter 3, in fact, open, look at the end of chapter 3, starting in verse 14. He's going to pray again for him. Verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Do you see what God's looking for? He's trying to do something in you. He wants to see himself through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, then what? Who can be against us? He says, work it out. This matters. It matters what we're doing. This dance that we're doing absolutely matters. It has to be worked out. In Ephesians 5, 18, he even says, look, I understand this matters so greatly. I give you my Holy Spirit. He says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Don't, don't get caught up in what the world says to do. Instead, he says, be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 2, 6 through 16, we have the mind of Christ. 
I just want us to feel the weight for a second. This man-woman thing isn't a thing to be trifled with. It's not something simplistic that's just nice that Todd's up going, oh, look, our marriages will be happy. Everything will funnel out great because I'm not naive to think that they will. But your dance matters. It absolutely matters. It matters so greatly. If you, can just, if you want to, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 3, 9. It matters so greatly that he wants people to understand that what God's doing here is trying to show off his people. So you look at the people of Israel, and the people of Israel, he said, I'm going to do something great amongst you so that the other kingdoms around you will look at you, and you will be a blessing to them, and they will understand who I am as God. And by the way, that hasn't quit. That's what he's still doing with his church. You get into like 1 Peter 2, that that we might be a group of people that proclaim the excellencies of God, chapter 2, verse 9. But in 3, 9, he calls us, you see down there, he calls us a field and a building. Kind of a funny thing to call us, isn't it? But in it, his whole point is, is that God wants to show you off. It's a 1 Peter 3 reality. He wants his church to live in such a way that the world demands to know an answer for the hope that's in us. The reason he bought us out when you get to like 1 Corinthians 6.20 is he said you were bought with a price. Why? So that you might glorify God with your body. That you might, and here's our word, that you might dance. See, the reality of the world that we live in, and you know my passion and my heart for this, If we're ever going to reach our community, we have to dance. The biggest reason that I believe people don't come to know Jesus Christ is because they look at us and they call us hypocrites. Yet the Spirit of God is in us. And when it's in us, something magical happens. Not magical. Makes it sound like it's lucky charms. Something amazing happens in us. I hate that term magical. It's like, oh, it's magically delicious. He does something amazing in us where all of a sudden he gives the world a foretaste of the glory to which it has come. People look at us and they go, what is that hope that's inside of you? Why is it that you live the way you live? You've got to give me an answer for this. But it not only matters because our gospel testimony to our world matters, It matters in a lot of ways also because you think about it, the only way sometimes our kids will ever come to know Christ is not through us showing up at Sunday school and them asking Jesus into their heart, but us as men and women in our marriage relationships living Jesus in front of them. The greatest rejection of students leaving the church whenever I was a youth pastor is my mom and dad are a bunch of hypocrites. What they say and what they do is not the same thing. And almost 80% have fled the church. It matters too because in 1 Corinthians 3.10 there's coming a point in which we're going to have to give an account for our dance. Now, I would never watch Dancing with the Stars. I've just heard that when they're done dancing there's always what? Judgment. That's Paul's point. The judgment here that he's talking about, you can even see at the very end of him talking through this when he gets down to verse 15. 
His point of the judgment is, is look, it's, he's not necessarily talking about a loss of salvation here. He says, you, you'll end up smelling like smoke, but yeah, you, you know, you'll, you'll get in is kind of his point. The key aspect is, is that we'll be judged. As men and women, we'll be judged how we danced. How we danced inside of our marriage matters. How men took the authority that God gave them as the head and used it as a means to bless their wife and their family. God will have a judgment uniquely on that. How wives, and this is what I mean, so often when people teach submission inside of marriage, they're like, oh, you know, if you have to. I'm like, skip that. You get to be Jesus and you're complaining? How you do that will matter. This dance that takes place to God, it matters. Remember the parable of the talents? I think it's a great kind of place to go into. In, in Matthew 25, he tells this story about a landowner going away and he gives five talents to one of his servants, two talents to another one, and one talent to one of them. His whole point being, at the end of it, he wanted them to absolutely do things that conveyed how great their master was. Now what's interesting in that, though, he didn't give everybody the same thing, did he? To one he gave five and two and one. In other words, and I think this applies into talking about our male-female relationships, there's some of us in here that have marriages that are pretty good. In other words, he, he, he gives to one, five. Maybe one of you have a struggling marriage. Maybe, maybe one of you wish you were married, but you're single. In other words, his point is not that all of us that are same. His point is, though, and to kind of use our dance analogy, dance the dance that God's given you. I always feel like people that are single are waiting so long for the day that Mr. or Mrs. Wright comes along that they forget that God is calling them to dance right now. Married people can't wait till they have the kiddos. Oh, everything's going to be so wonderful once children come. They forget to dance the dance right now. Once kids come, remember what it was like before we had children? <laughs> they forget that they're in the dance right now. Some of you are battling through all kinds of illnesses. You never planned that one in your whole dance, did you? But you dance the dance you have right now. In 1 Peter 3, and this is what I mean by it, is that in verses 1 through 7, 1 through 6, he spends the whole time talking about what happens if a woman has a bad husband. <laughs> he doesn't say what happens if a man has a bad wife. I'm still trying to figure out why, why didn't he do that. That's another thought. But his point when he's looking at the woman is, is not dance the dance of the woman that has a good marriage. Dance your dance. And his whole point, and this is what I mean, what we've been saved for, the whole point of dancing the dance with the one that you have right now is the point being that you might win him over. Don't worry about how the other people are dancing with their spouses. You just focus on your dance with the goal being if you have a husband that's not obedient to the truth, that doesn't know Jesus Christ, that somehow through the dancing that you dance with him, you will win him over. That's what he's after. 1 Peter 3, 7, when he talks to men, he has to look at them and say, fellas, don't forget that you're bigger. She's the weaker vessel. Now, that doesn't mean she's less smart or anything like that. It just means don't forget that you're bigger. This time, men being bigger could throw their weight around with any, without any consequences. And the reason he looks at them and he says, this is your dance. Don't you dare forget that that woman is a co-heir of the grace of life. That how you treat her is you treat her like you understand she to be the daughter of the king. 
you don't play. And in fact, you'll know if you're not doing your job because God will not hear your prayers, 1 Peter 3, 7. Just dance your dance. Dance the one God's given you. If you're single, dance that dance. If you're married, dance that one. If you have a bad marriage, dance that one. If you have a good marriage, dance that one. If you're a widow, dance that one. If you're someone that's divorced right now, dance the dance that God has given you. It's his point. Live in the place you are. Now at the end of it, and this is what I mean, there's an assessment to this. The master finally comes back. He looks at the first guy that has five. And the guy that five, you know, he's doubled it. And the master says, well, well done, good and faithful servant. The one that has two doubles it. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now you know in the middle of all of that making money for their master, you know deep in your heart they didn't always do it perfectly, did they? The reason that is important is at the end they did their job. And in fact, the most convicting part of this is that at the end, the only one that gets in trouble is the one that refuses to dance. Last week, I think it was, or week before, I don't remember which, was it last week I did the dance with Brianna? I took my daughter to a, a daddy-daughter dance. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to just dance with my daughter. And so I'm holding her hand, walking in there, right? And we go do like one dance together. And all of a sudden, friends came. And it was like, why don't you go sit over there, Dad? We're going to be doing things. (laughs) I got over there, and there were all the other dads with me. (laughs) Why did we come again? there's a bunch of you sitting on the sidelines of the dance. Some of you, for different reasons, have checked out of maybe your marriages, you've checked out of your singleness, you've checked out of whatever it is that God has you in. Now, either number one, it's because you're confused and you don't understand that God has a plan to work through you and that he will judge us one day on it. That could be one aspect of it. Or it might actually mean you don't know Jesus. See, at the end of it, this one gets cast out, meaning you showed yourself never to be truly a servant of mine. That's how, that's how weighty this is. You see what I'm saying? This dance matters. Are you with me on this? This dance has weight to it. And if it has weight to it, then doesn't it make sense that as we live this life, we should dance carefully? Go, to, go, to first, go back to Ephesians again. Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verse 15. This is what Paul's now going to say on this whole dance thing. If this dance matters and there's a weight to it, in other words, if, if there's people that need to know about Jesus Christ by watching how we live, if, if God's going to judge it one day, that must mean that God takes this seriously. Now watch what he does in 515. This is so fascinating. He says, be careful then how you walk. Or again, here's our word. Be careful how you dance. That word careful has the idea of thinking through it. Ponder. Be aware. Don't allow anything to get in the way of the dance that you're supposed to dance. The one word I hear over and over again inside of the American culture is that I'm so busy. Have you ever noticed our busyness is what keeps me from, us from really joining God in what he's doing? 
God's not going to judge you on your capacity and ability to hit a softball. He's not going to get to heaven and go, dude, I watched you play softball. Pound it out. You brought it. Come on, right here. I'm not anti-softball. But I'll tell you what, he's going to be very serious about your marriage. He's going to be very serious about your faithfulness and your parenting. He's going to be very serious on how you interacted inside of the church. And so Paul says, be careful. He connects it with this idea right after that of don't be unwise. Look down in there in verse 15. Don't be unwise, but be what? Wise. The capacity of wisdom is, is to look at things around me and to know what I'm supposed to do. That's why when you look down at the end of verse 17, he says in there, he says, don't be foolish, but understand what God's will is. Understand what God's called you to do. What God's, how God's called, you, or called you to dance. In other words, I have to have an awareness of what's supposed to happen. How do I get that awareness? I get that awareness. It's found in Romans 12. Like when you look at it, he says, I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. In other words, the way that I keep focused on the dance is I look down inside of the text and I see the amazing story of God, which is why we teach the story of God over and over and over again, is because if I'm going to keep myself careful, if I'm going to be wise, if I'm going to keep focused on the task at hand, I have to saturate myself inside of God's story to make sure that I I understand the rhythm of what God's doing. So he says, therefore, based upon the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto him, which is your reasonable service of worship. In other words, it's now looking at it and going, this is God's story, what he's doing, and saying to God, God, I want my story to be your story. I want to die. I want, just you know, if you're new here, I'm not talking real death. I'm talking metaphorical death, spiritual death. There we go. He says in there, that's how we worship. See, our quiet time is not just this boring thing that we do because a verse a day keeps the devil away. We engage ourselves in God's word because this dance matters. We open up his word and say, God, you've got to show me what I'm supposed to be doing right now. I've got to understand it because you've called me to dance. And one day, God, I believe you're going to judge me on this dance. So please help me to understand what it is that I'm supposed to do in this. It's intimacy with a purpose. Then he says, do not be conformed to this world. He says, don't let the world tell you what to do. Paul, he talks about this in like Ephesians 5. He says, don't be unwise. Or even in verse 17, don't be a fool. It's 1 Corinthians 1 where he talks about man's wisdom versus God's wisdom. You've got to shut off what the world is telling you, what manhood and womanhood is. Which, by the way, right now it's so cattywampus to who God is, is that we've got to say no to that and just say, God, you speak the truth into me. And he says, and by that process, Romans 12, 2, I will transform your mind, or 1 Corinthians 2, 16, I'm going to give you the mind of Christ. Why would he do it? He says, so that you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, in Ephesians 6, he also tells us this is spiritual is that there's another side to this as we walk through it. You see down there in, at the, at the, in verse 16, because the days are what? They're evil. Man, every day I wake up, do you understand that my biggest problem is me? 
And your biggest problem is you because the flesh just battled us. The world is constantly trying to tell us what to do. And not only that, and whether you believe it or not, there's a real Satan and there's real demons that are out there. That's why he says in Ephesians 6, you better suit up. You better put on the armor of God. You better understand what it is to be because there's a real battle going on there. You better get on your knees and pray because there's a real battle going on there. Because I found in my life, if I open that door just a little bit, isn't it funny how Satan can slide into that? Now, what I want to do is I'm going to bring my wife up real quickly. I wanted her to kind of, we wanted to just kind of share how is it that we see either Satan coming into these moments or how is it that we, uh, or how is it that we see when we've done well. But let me get you a chair. We're dancing right now. Excuse us. This is my wife, Lisa. So let me just kind of throw this question at you, and you can, you can answer it. By the way, just so you know, I had to, um, it, this cost me a lot of capital to get my wife up here. <laughs> she doesn't naturally like to be in front of people. This is not her, uh, this is not her sweet spot, but um, maybe just real quickly uh, in our dance, right? We'll just talk about our dance. What are some of the ways that you see that I'm unwise or that I'm a fool? <laughs> and she's like... Santa Claus list. <laughs> I have two pages. Though. <laughs> yeah, like what would be some of the ways like you've seen in which like Satan has maybe snuck in on us and it's kind of we've walked through. So. Well, I think Todd is um, something I really appreciate about Todd is he's very even tempered. His temperament's really, really even, which means he's very, very easy to um, live with. But there's a lot going on in that head <laughs> and uh, he doesn't communicate it very well or very often. Uh, so... It's been a struggle in our marriage for 20 years. <laughs> you think we'd have it figured out, but we don't. Um, so in my little world, I communicate a very opposite of that. So when he asks me how my day is going, you get every single detail of my life down to the very last minute, which I'm learning he doesn't need all that. <laughs> um, but when I ask him how he's doing, I expect if he says he's good, he's good. And I lack a little discernment, and so I don't look beyond that. I just assume he's telling me the truth. So I think that's our biggest struggle, is yeah. getting you to communicate your feelings or what's going on in your head. Yeah. And I think with it, what happens oftentimes then is that I'll see her frustrated. She grew up in a very legalistic background, and which can lead to judgmentalism, can lead to <laughs> all kinds of things. And suddenly I'm like, man, you're kind of judgmental lately. <laughs> And I'll always look at her and I'll say, is everything okay? And she'll go, I'm fine. And I'll always say this to her, are you lying to me? To which at that point she goes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's just, but it's fascinating, right? The way Satan can sneak, we would, some people are going, is that your only problem? <laughs> Satan sneaks into that and causes problems, doesn't he? And that's what we're talking about with it. Maybe, uh, maybe just an example of maybe where you've noticed we've danced well together. Like what would be a way in which you'd, you've seen, like maybe out of, leadership in which you've seen how we've danced well together. There was a time, a specific time very early in our marriage where I think Todd danced very well with us and try not to cry this. So, <laughs> um, in fact, I'd say that he had to um, almost carry me. And if we're going to keep up this analogy, he had to carry me onto the dance floor and um, almost dance for us. And um, about five years into our marriage, I found out I was pregnant. And um, we miscarried very shortly after that. And um, I know there's a lot of women out there that have um, 
walked that road, and it's uh, disheartening, and it's hard to process. But for me, personally, I thought it was really unfair, because it had taken us five years to get pregnant to begin with. And so everything kind of fell on top of me. My world stopped. I was really sad. I was kind of depressed. Um, and I kind of just stopped dancing altogether, I would say. And I think where Todd danced really well with me through that was he created a space for me to really grieve. Because um, miscarriage is kind of a funny thing, and you don't really know what to do with it. But Todd didn't hurry me through the process. He just let me be. And more than that, looking back, he didn't make me any promises. He didn't tell me we'd get pregnant again. He didn't, um, he didn't say anything like that, because I think really um, God was giving him a lot of discernment in that, that maybe we wouldn't have biological children, and gave him wisdom to really fight for me during this time, that I would come out of this trial with no bitterness and resentment and anger, which was going to be really important. Um, because uh, <laughs> it was going to be another seven years before uh, we had children in our life. So if you're counting, that was uh, 12 years of waiting. Um, but during, there came a time where enough was enough. <laughs> and Todd, in his loving, compassionate way, looked at me and said, Lisa, either God doesn't think we need a baby or we can't handle a baby right now. And I think that's what I needed to hear at the moment. I'm pretty sure it was hard for him to um, say, this is it. You need to maybe put your dance shoes back on and get out there and um, stop feeling sorry for yourself because there is something much, much bigger at work here than um, me and, what, and everything being about me and my story and the story I was writing. So, Yeah, and what's, what's fun about that is that I always tell my wife, I keep, she... She allows me to lead her so easily. Um, I know some of you struggle in that process between, but I have a wife that's always the go-for-it wife. In fact, one time I was looking at her, I was thinking through a decision, and, she, and she, I go, what do you think? And she goes, you know, Todd, it kind of doesn't matter what I think because ultimately you're be going to be the one held accountable for this decision. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly the weight of the Lord landed on me, you know? But I think that's one of the things that, when, that I see in her, that when we talk about this idea of submission, and I don't think she's ever felt squashed in our marriage. You can ask her privately on that <laughs> one. But she just always looks at me and says, you lead. Let's dance. And I think in this process, and, and look back down on Ephesians 5 again, real quickly. In verse 16, he says this statement that I think is so powerful. And I'm just going to read it for you so that we make sure that we get it. He says, making the best use of the time. In some of your texts, it might be making the best use of the opportunity. The idea is in this dance thing, and this is what I want you to feel. Not only is there a weight to this, not only is God going to ask us the question of how are we dancing the dance that he's given us, but understand this, that every dance comes to an end, doesn't it? Like one of the things I was, I was praying for my kids, she was in bed and I kind of, I, at nighttime, I'll just go pray for our kids, I'll pray over them. And I'm praying over my oldest daughter and I started thinking in this moment, at some point, some young yoo-hoo is going to come ask for her hand in marriage. I'm going to take him out and show him my guns first and then, <laughs> 
Lord, you understand what a 12 gauge can do. <laughs> but it hit me with my daughter. Eventually, that dance is going to be different. It's going to change. Now, I can't affect everything in my daughter's life. In other words, God is at work in her, but I can be faithful to my dance. My son is one of those sons that's so interesting as far as like, uh, he is hyper hairy, dude. He, he can't control himself if you put him on a sedative. But yet my wife is called to dance with him. My youngest daughter, who's three going on 30, I only got a lot of time to dance with her. Paul wants us to understand, don't miss the fact this dance doesn't last forever and this music is not going to stop for you. Sometimes it ends because of failure, right? I have parents that got a divorce. And in some ways, I see some of you that have been divorced think that that's your exit papers off the dance floor. The gospel assumes that we will fail. But the gospel has the capacity to work us through that failure. And it's time for some of you that are divorced or even some of you that are widowed to put your dance shoes back on. It's time to dance. And for some of it, it comes because of death, doesn't it? One of the most beautiful things, and I'll try, I'm not going to try to make it through without crying. Way to go. She got me all mushy. My grandparents were married for almost 75 years. 74 and some change. Can you imagine that? Now, let me preface it by this. My grandma and grandpa, they were lively people. I'll never forget my, my grandpa, who everybody says I'm cutting the mold of, was being kind of smart-alecky and, and cynical with my grandma, and she had had it. And she had one of those 1970s purses that were leather with the straps on it. And all of a sudden, everybody sees it because here comes grandma's purse. And, she's and she literally, across our entire living room, threw it at my grandpa. My grandpa ducks. It misses him. It hits this huge window. And I, it didn't break. And then my grandpa looks at her. And this is what he says to her. You throw like a girl. <laughs> so their dance wasn't always perfect. Is what I'm saying. But I saw something when my grandpa walked my grandma into death. We just happened to be at Cheyenne where, they, where he was at in the hospital. And my grandma was going to do a surgery with which she would never really cover or come out of it because of kind of having to go on, on pain medication after that. But I watched my grandpa walk into the room and he grabbed her hand and he just began to ooze over her. And cherish her. And talk to her about where she's going next to be in the arms of Jesus. You ever seen those great dances, you know, where they like, it's the flowing thing, like a Viennese waltz. I don't really know what it is, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> and it's flowy, and the guy's leading it, and the dress is beautiful. What always happens at the end? They do the dip. And I got to sit in that hospital room as my grandpa did the dip, and he was done. And the dance was over. We only have the time. Now, for all of you that are in here, let me ask you this question. Are you dancing 
the dances that God has given you? Are you sitting on the sidelines? Are you checked out? Because how you dance matters. If you need prayer today because for whatever reason inside of your marriage or your singleness or your divorcehood or even in your widowhood, and you're thinking, I'm not dancing. Well, if you need prayer today, we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to pray over you. If you need counseling, we've got counseling. This, this room's not for counseling. It's for prayer. But if you'd like counseling, we've got a counseling team of people that will walk with you through this. But let me just finish with this again. How are you doing dancing the dance God's given you? All right? You with me? Some of you are out there going, I'm not sure whether I lost you or I have you. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for grace. Thank you for your love for us. Father, would Cornerstone be a church that dances well? Would we have marriages? Would we have those that are single for whatever reason? Father, would we take advantage of this time that you've given us? Would we make the most of the time? Father, would you stir via your Holy Spirit a passion that we would dance well together? In your precious name we pray, amen. One last thought before we sing. Tonight at 5 o'clock, we're going to do a Q&A on this whole thing of biblical manhood and womanhood. So I'm going to be here. <clears throat> if none of you show up, um, I'll just talk to my wife. I'll answer questions for her about biblical manhood and womanhood. But we're going to go for about an hour and a half. Some of the elders and pastors will be here. So if you want to come, we'd love to have you. I'm sure, you know, in this whole process, you might have some questions. But we'll be here at 5, and so we'd, uh, we'd love for you to join us, all right? Let's stand up. Let's sing.